subject of the Messianic age and uh, what we can say about the Mashiach, Messiah, and the events that lead up to that and the events beyond that. Uh, obviously, a very extensive subject, but let me try to speak about some aspects of the subject and then I'll stop for questions. If you have any questions, I'll do my best to. Um, to answer what I can. Let's try to divide this into categories. First of all, what do we know about Mashiach? Uh, what can we say about the persona, the, the person himself, about, about the Messianic age? And then let's perhaps take a look at what it means. Why do we need, as it were, why do we need a Messianic age? Right, That's a serious question. The Maral deals with that. And if we have time, we perhaps go into one or, or more than one angle on on that question of why <clears throat> why it's necessary in, in in the scope of world history. First of all, by way of background, and and just to try to fit what this subject fit the subject into the broader concept of what we usually call the world to come. This is trying to clarify one or two aspects of that. Some of this we have spoken about in the past, but. Let's first of all try to clarify what we mean by these terms. When we talk about the Messianic Age, <clears throat> the first thing to know is we're talking about a specific phase of world history. These terms are often mis, um, um, often used in a very general sense. Very often you'll find sources talking about the world to come, what we call Olam Haba, the world to come, about the Messianic Age, about um, the world of souls, uh, all sorts of different terminologies, <clears throat> which can be very confusing. So... <laughs> Let's try to make, first of all, a simple timeline to just be clear which terms we are using to refer to, to which, which elements. And perhaps the simplest way to do it, although there's a lot of discussion about this and many different opinions about this, but perhaps a simple, a simple way to do it just to give us a framework on which to hang this is that we have, you can make a timeline of world history which would divide the world, as we know it, into 6,000 years, right? If you... If you understand world history lasting for 6,000 years, which the Talmud says that the world will be in the form that we are familiar with for 6,000 years, 2,000 in one form, 2,000 in another form, and the final 2,000 will be called Mashiach in some sense, or the pre-Messianic and then Messianic age, then we are located now in the year 5,776, right? Which means we are 5,766. We are way down the line in terms of 6,000. If the world began here with six days of creation, which is a different time scale entirely, and then continues for 6,000 years, divided into three phases of 2,000, we are somewhere very close to the end. We're late Friday afternoon. Right? According to the Ramban, every one of these days, every one of these 1,000 years is corresponding to and is a projection of one of the days of creation. Right? The world is created in six days, and that is a <coughs> premonition or a... Um, it's a root, if you like. Each of the six days of creation is a root of a thousand years. And therefore, just as the world was brought into existence in six days, even though those, those days may be days in a sense during which events happened at a completely different rate of change than they're happening now, or on a different spiritual plane, but nevertheless they were six days, each of them is the forerunner of a thousand years. And if you have a week made of six days... Uh, and a, and a, a, a set of millennia comprising 6,000 years, then the, where we are now, late in the sixth 
millennium corresponds to very late Friday afternoon, right? You should look excited at that, because that means like just before Shabbos, right? Something exciting is about to happen. <coughs> it's a time of, um, of great expectation. According to all our sources, we are now in the pre-Messianic age. All the predictions that need to be in place for the Messianic advent to occur are certainly in place now. We have no way of predicting the date of the coming of Mashiach because that has been explicitly hidden. And if there's time, we can perhaps talk about that. One of the great mysteries of Jewish history is the nature of the hiddenness, the the essential unpredictability of the arrival of the Mashiach and why, paradoxically, so many greats in Jewish history have have predicted the date, right? Virtually all the greats in Jewish history despite the, the Gemara's very clear statement that it is a very negative thing and in fact an impossible thing to accurately predict the date of the Messianic beginning, nevertheless many great Torah authorities apparently did that. That's a mystery in its own right needs to be addressed. Many mysteries here. <clears throat> but first of all, we find ourselves now very close to the end of the sixth millennium and the idea of the Messianic age is that somewhere before the year 6000, technically speaking, somewhere from the year 4,000 on. It could have happened in a different sense before, but in the sense we're talking about now, from the year 4,000, just about 2,000 years ago, just a little under 2,000 years ago, the Messianic age could have begun. And the promise that we have, the Torah promise is, (coughs) that although we can't predict when it will be, (coughs) it will certainly be, (coughs) it will be within the time of these six millennia, and it will last from whenever it begins until the year 6,000. In other words... If the Mashiach would come tomorrow morning, then he would last, that age would last, the Messianic age would last from there until the year 6000. That is what's known as Yemosa Mashiach. It is part of the history of the world that we are familiar with, part of the 6000 years. What happens after the 6000 years, the 7th millennium, is parallel to Shabbos. And just like Shabbat is something that transcends the six days of creation and has a completely different nature, so too the seventh millennium will be something completely transcending world history. There, the Gemara's description of it, it says that the language in the Talmud is shish, shish alfei shnin, 6,000 years kaim alma, the world lasts for 6,000 years, ve'echad charuv, and one, it is destroyed. Destroyed means that for a 1,000 years, the world will be in a format which is contingent on and developed on the previous format having been destroyed. What does the new format look like? It's a completely mystical description. The Gemara says it will be like water with souls floating with wings over the water. All this, of course, needs a deeper explanation. But it's a different order of, of, of existence during which <coughs> souls will, of course, exist, but those neshamas, those souls, will not have free will. Right? That will be a phase of reward, or according to the Ari, that's the first phase of reward, because after the seventh millennium, you have an eighth, ninth, and tenth millennium, each of which is a higher stage of a higher stage of existence, and these are all known as Oilama Saskar, the worlds of reward. We live now in the world of work, and from the year 6000 on, we enter the worlds of reward. The strange thing about the Messianic age is that it's intermediate between the world of work that we exist in now, and the worlds of reward. And that, of course, is one of the famous questions that Maral deals with. <coughs> Why do you need an intermediate stage, right? Why do you need an intermediate stage? If you need, if the stage is meant to be work during which we can earn our reward, give us the full work. If it, on the other hand, is meant to be a phase of reward, give us the full reward. Why do you need an age 
where the Talmud describes as Yomim She'en Ba'im Chayfetz, days during which you'll have no desire. In other words, much less free will. Some free will, but less free will. That's one of the mysteries as well we need to discuss. However, be that as it may, this is an intermediate phase. There's first the normal phase of history that we experience, then there's the Messianic age, and then there's a completely transcendent phase with no free will at all, where the world will not look the way we are used to seeing it, but we'll enter a zone where the reality there will be that which was constructed <coughs> as a, a reward, if you like, proje- a projection of the work that was done here, and that's beyond the Messianic age. So Yemesa Mashiach refers to this intermediate zone, which has some of the characteristics of the world we're familiar with now, and some of the characteristics of a world of reward. It's an intermediate, intermediate period. Just to give one more facet of understanding to that, the Ari says... You know, there's a famous argument in the Talmud. Man, that's the way to, to, to approach it. The Talmud says like this. <clears throat> what will the days of the Messiah be like? So one opinion is that it will be a completely transcendent type of existence. In other words, what will happen then will be things that we are not familiar with now at all, a much higher world. There's one opinion in the Talmud that says, that the world in the Messianic age will continue according to its natural path. Right? It will not be a different world it will continue according to its minag. Its minag means the way the world works now, which means a physical world, including probably marriage, maybe even the birth of children, uh, natural phenomena, perhaps even, even poverty could be, in a different sense, of course. It, doesn't, it means there might be poor people, but they will have all their needs provided. Only they'll be provided by other people giving them. Right? There are other examples as well. Of course, there are some things that are impossible to understand that way, because the temple will be rebuilt, according to one opinion, the temple will be built in fire. Obviously, there will be things that are not <coughs> of the natural order that we are familiar with now, but it seems that the general tone will be <coughs> what's called a world that's natural. <coughs> so there are two opinions. Opinion one, the Messianic age does not look natural at all. Opinion two, it looks entirely natural. Whether there will be death or not is another subject. That gets into the question of the resurrection of the dead, from which we need to discuss reincarnation. A lot of things to talk about here, but before we get to Tria Simesim, will the Messianic age look natural or not? This is a wide-ranging and extreme argument in the Talmud. One, the world will look entirely natural. Two, it will look entirely unnatural. The opinion that holds it will look natural holds that it will be a natural physical world, only a peaceful world. There will be no wars. The world will be run according to Torah law. All nations and rules will bring homage to Jerusalem. The Messiah will be, the Mashiach will be the king. He'll first lead the war against the attack, those who attack Israel and Yerushalayim. <coughs> a whole lot of predictions about that war, very scary things. In the end, the war will be won, and the king, the international king, not just the king of the Jewish people, but he will be an international figurehead, <coughs> and the whole world will run according to Torah. <coughs> Nations from all over the world will bring homage to Jerusalem, because in that phase people will not be allowed to convert to Judaism anymore. And it will be an idyllic world from a socio-political point of view. In other words, all nations living in peace. There'll be no weapons. All the weapons will have been converted into tools of peace. Swords made into plowshares and probably means nuclear arsenals turned into, I don't know, peaceful nuclear power stations and all be good. But but apart, apart from the political dispensation, it will be a world that we're familiar with. And even the political dispensation will be a natural one, only peaceful. 
with everyone able to trust everyone else and the Mashiach being the focus of trust so there need, don't need to be stockpiling of arms because no one will have any fears about anyone attacking them. That is what it will look like. <clears throat> the Ari has a wonderful resolution of this argument in which he explains that both are true. <coughs> I presume you're aware that when it comes to the deeper realms of Torah, we have a principle that there are no real arguments. Halakhically, there are arguments. In a halakhic subject, if one says something's allowed and one says it's not allowed, so there is an argument. In these metaphysical areas, when there's an argument in the Talmud, the general principle is that they are not really they're not arguing in the conventional sense. Rather, each one is bringing out a different facet of the same multifaceted jewel. In other words, we are looking from different angles at the same reality, and the argument is not really an argument in essence, it's an argument only in each one bringing out a different and valid <coughs> facet of the same subject. So they are reapproaches it here, uses that approach, and he says this. How do you resolve this argument that says that on the one hand the messianic age will be natural, <coughs> and on the other hand it says it will be completely supernatural? And he says the following. It will be both. It will be a natural world <coughs> for those who have natural eyes, and it will be a supernatural world for those who have supernatural eyes. In other words, to the extent that you've developed yourself, to the extent that you've learned to penetrate reality, you've learned to see through the mask or the veil of the world, in the messianic age you will see the depth behind the, <coughs> behind the scenes. To the extent that you've lived only as a natural person, <coughs> so to that extent you'll see only the natural. I think the, it's, based, it's based on a verse which says, that the world will be full of, full of spiritual knowledge, like water covers the ocean. So the commentary is, what do you mean like water covers the ocean? That's a very strange expression. But the explanation is that water covers the ocean in a particular fashion. Water covers the ocean in such a way that it's flat. In other words, the ocean is absolutely flat, surface, right? As flat as it gets is the surface of the sea. But the depths that you cannot see are very different in every place. In other words, looked at superficially, the ocean looks like a flat surface. However, if you delve beneath the surface, there are places where it's only deep enough to wet your ankles, and there are other places where it's ten miles deep. That is how the world will be when the Mashiach arrives. Looked at superficially, it will all look the same. But according to your ability to penetrate reality, you will see a completely different world utterly <coughs> unfamiliar to, <coughs> to the eyes that look at the world now. There is, of course, a deeper take on this, which is also worth understanding, and that is that a person who has developed those eyes in depth can see it now as well. A person who has reached a level of spiritual development can look at the natural world that we experience now, <coughs> and even within the natural world that we experience now, he can see depth that lies beneath the surface. There's a beautiful Hasidic illustration of that. The Hasidim tell the story of a certain Rav Mendel who lived in Tzfas. This must have been well over 100 years ago. He lived in Tzfas, and one day, <coughs> as he was sitting and studying his books at his, at his desk, at his table, his wife walked into the house and she said, Rav Mendel, they say the Mashiach's arrived. What had happened was someone in the marketplace of Tzfas <coughs> was blowing a chauffeur, <coughs> and the rumor was going around... <coughs> The rumor was going around that the Mashiach had arrived. So when she told her husband this, he got up from his, his book, he went to the window, <coughs> put his head out of the window for a moment, and he came back and he said, no, the Mashiach definitely hasn't arrived because nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. In other words, the air 
And he put his head out of the window to sense the air of the world. And since nothing had changed in the air of the world that he was sensitive to, he was able to tell her that the Mashiach hadn't arrived and he sat down and carried on learning. Now, when the Hasidim tell the story, they add the following question. Why did he need to put his head out the window? And the answer is because where he was in his own private domain, there would have been no difference. That means in his own private domain, the domain of his own inner sanctum, he had built a personal and private reality where when the Mashiach arrives, there will be no difference. He already had reached that level of that sort of experience and that sort of gilui. In order to tell whether Mashiach arrived or not, he needed to sense the outside world, the world that is as yet uncorrected. But he lived in a world of tikkun, a world of, <coughs> world of correction, and that's a, a typical Hasidic <coughs> insight into, into the subject. But at a more expanded level, of course, when the Mashiach arrives, there will be this reality which at one and the same time will be physical and yet spiritual, and the ability to see that will depend on one's own inner development. Let's talk just for a moment about the features of the Messianic Age, and then, and then we can talk about perhaps this peculiar uh, intermediate nature of, of that time. First of all, the Mashiach himself will be a human being, but utterly unlike anything we've ever experienced. The Rambam says he will be a little less in prophecy than Moshe Rabbeinu, than Moses, and greater in wisdom than Shlomo, than King Solomon. Right? So somebody completely beyond our ability to picture, somebody of a completely different stature, not somebody sort of a little bit uh, smarter than you, know, than you, or perhaps a little less smart than you, depends on your opinion of yourself. We are talking about something of a totally different order of magnitude, a completely different scale, something that for completely and utterly transcends anything we're familiar with, that will be the persona of the Mashiach. In fact, according to the Kabbalistic tradition, <coughs> he will be a reincarnation of King David. David In other words, a revisitation. <coughs> the world will be visited again by that same soul. Why that particular soul needs explanation, I'm not going to go into that now. But he will be a human being who will be on that level. There's all sorts of Midrashim about where he's now. Many Midrashim suggest that he's alive right now. He's biding his time. He's not able to come because we are not ready for him. One major says that he sits at the gates of Rome binding his wounds where he suffers for us. All sorts of, uh, <clears throat> of ideas, many of which clearly form the basis of Christianity. You can see that the, the Christian <clears throat> application of this has the, uh, many of the ideas are um, misapplications of Midrashim that, that talk about all sorts of elements that you'll find in the, the, the Christian messianic tradition. But be that as it may, he is a human being who is waiting for the time when the, the world will be, will be suitable. That's a hidden time. We are not able to know when that is. And when the Mashiach arrives, the, the detailed events of that time are also hidden from us. The Rambam puts it like this. In his chapter in which he deals on the laws and details of the Mashiach, he says... The language he uses is lo yeda adam That's his language. No human being can know what it will be like until it happens. And some of the commentaries, the Briskarov asks, for example, <clears throat> why would he say that? Why tell us that you can't know something? If you don't know it, just don't talk about it. If you can know it, then tell us about it. What does the Rambam mean? That this is something that you can't know now. When it happens, you'll know. Is that some sort of joke? In other words, the Rambam says, these are the laws of Mashiach. How will it be? Well, when it comes, you'll know. What sort of statement is that? The Briskorov used to explain what it means is that what the Ram's telling you 
is that there's a phase of history where we can know only the Torah of that phase. We can know only the spiritual import. We can study the Torah of that phase, but we cannot know what its detailed application will be like. In other words, there is a phase of history, namely the one we're living through now, where what the Torah says has two levels of meaning, both of which we can deal, we can understand. One is <coughs> the Torah of the, the, the that means the, the spiritual nature of the time or the idea. And secondly, the practical application. For example, halachic application. We can understand what that is in practice. In the Messianic age, we know only one of those dimensions. We know only the Torah <coughs> dimension. We don't know what it will look like. In other words, all the statements that we have of the Messianic age, <coughs> they sound like they sound like statements, for example, talks about a war. What sort of war it will be? And what sort of nations will attack the Jewish people, right? And, and how long the war will last? All these statements, and what will happen to people, what will happen to men, what will happen to women? All these statements, what the Rambam is telling you is, you can know what those statements are on a Torah basis, but what they look like on a detailed, physical, geopolitical basis, we cannot know. The reason is that this is the transition into another age, and in that age, things look things take on a different aspect than they do now. Put it this way, the words that we have now, we can understand on a Torah level, but the correct interpretation, what they will look like, we'll only know when it happens. Is there a door we can close there? Is there a door on that side we can close? Thank you, I'm sorry to bother you. Um, I'll give you an illustration of this. There was uh, Rabbi Yitzchak, a Khan inspector, was one of the great sages of the previous generation. So, once his, uh, his uh, congregants asked him, they said, Rabbi, do you believe that the Mashiach could come now? Talking a hundred years ago, <coughs> or a little less than that. So he said, <coughs> of course. They said to him, but look, the Talmud says, the Gemara says that before the Mashiach can come, certain predictions have to be in place. Certain details about inflation and certain political details and certain... And those things are clearly not here, speaking back then. And therefore, how can you believe that the Mashiach can come tomorrow if all the predictions that are required are not yet fulfilled. Listen carefully to what he said. He said, when the Mashiach comes, only then will you understand what those predictions meant. You're assuming that it couldn't happen now because you've made your interpretation of those predictions. You'll only understand those predictions when he comes, then you'll know what it means. <coughs> right? <coughs> to put it in a, from a different angle, <coughs> again from a Hasidic perspective, they tell of a certain Hasidic Rebbe, he was praying very hard, davening very hard, one Shabbos for the Mashiach to come. Extremely long prayer. So after the davening, the Hasidim went over and they said, Rebbe, you know the Gemara says that the Mashiach cannot come on Shabbos. Right? The Talmud says he cannot come on a Friday and cannot come on Shabbos. I'm not going to go into the reasons, but that's what the Talmud says. Therefore, why specifically today on Shabbos, when you know your prayer cannot be answered, why today are you davening for the Mashiach? He said, let him come, it will be a kasha. In other words, you know, let the Mashiach arrive. So it'll be a difficulty. You know, so we'll have a problem. Just let him come. Now, that's not frivolous. What he meant was, the, the simple level, of course, is, you know, that's, our problem is not to worry about what's possible. Our problem is only to, yeah, to, to, to will and to long for <coughs> and to daven for the correct level of the world. But the deeper level, of course, is when he comes, then you'll have a difficulty. And then only will you understand the correct meaning Right? Don't, don't be constrained by the, by the predictions in what you think is the correct understanding of those predictions. We're talking about something unlike this phase of the world's history where <clears throat> the predictions that we talk about or the details we talk about apply themselves in practical expression and we know what that practical expression is. When it comes to Mashiach, we do not know what the practical expression will be. We know only the Torah of that, <clears throat> of that matter. For example, 
when it says that there'll be a war and all the Western nations will attack us and they'll march on Jerusalem and they'll use the Arabs as an ally, possibly even using the Arab nations as the point of attack and the war will take 12 minutes, it says, for example. 12 minutes, the Gorn of Vilna brings this. Right? The Gorn died in 1797. Imagine writing in the 1700s that there will be an international war that will last for 12 minutes. It must have looked like a misprint. Right? Today you can understand such a thing, but back then it, was, it must have been impossible to understand. It will leave a third of the world dead. A third injured and a third will survive. These are all things we cannot understand. Right? Before you start getting pictures into your head, you have to understand that <clears throat> these are things that we have only, we know only the Torah of these things. We don't know what it will look like on a geopolitical basis, what it will look like physically. The Talmud has all sorts of descriptions. The nations will march against Jerusalem, it says in Sanhedrin. They will come with all their wealth, not just their weapons. They'll bring their women and their, their immoral women. It's, uh, this is going to be a very dramatic showdown, okay? Very, very picture, uh, very colorful, let's put it that way. <coughs> showdown in Israel around Jerusalem. But before you get carried away with <coughs> the pictures of what it will look like, <coughs> be aware <coughs> that we know only the Torah of this matter. We do not know what it looks like on a, on a physical basis. Of course, that doesn't mean that we don't have halachic details. One of the reasons that the Rambam brings all this is because when the Mashiach arrives, we'll need certain criteria to know that he is the valid person. Right? There's a thing called Cheskas Mashiach. In other words, he will have to do certain steps. And as he goes through those steps of fulfilling these prophecies, then we will go along with him on the assumption that this is possibly or even probably the Mashiach, <clears throat> but only when he finally fulfills all the details will it then be ratified that in fact the thing is complete. The example of this, of course, is Rabbi Akiva and Bar Kokhba. <clears throat> Bar Kokhba was an individual who lived in the days of Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Akiva and all the sages agreed that he could very well be the Mashiach. They weren't mistaken, they weren't unaware. He fulfilled the criteria. And as one step after another step happened, it was becoming apparent that this could very well be a playing out of the messianic drama. And unfortunately, it got to a point where it collapsed. And then they had to, they had to, then, uh, they had to then agree, of course, and they had to then um, acknowledge the fact that it hadn't, it hadn't gone through to its completion. But it's not that... You know, it's, it's very childish to think that Rabbi Kiva made a mistake. He didn't make a mistake. He ratified the fact that this individual had the potential to be the Mashiach. And if he went through all the steps required, and there are many steps, <clears throat> then when they're all fulfilled he would have an unqualified Torah um, ratification based on all the predictions. The steps are many. The steps are one that all Jews will end up in Israel. Every single Jew on earth will end up back in Israel. The temple will be rebuilt. And there's all sorts of detailed predictions. For example, it says that anyone born in Israel would be escorted back there by the non-Jews where he lives. Ish for ish, yulad sham. It's a medrash in Tehillim. It says that if you have the merit to have been born in Israel, then not only will you end up there, but you'll have an honored escort not e even if you are not fast enough to get back there, the non-Jews where you find yourself, they will make sure to escort you back and make sure you get all sorts of detailed predictions <coughs> about Mashiach. But that is, um, <coughs> that's what it says. Now, on a more spiritual basis, or more philosophical basis, one of the things we know is that during Yemusa Mashiach we'll have less free will. Now, let's discuss this and try to answer the difficulty of why we need such an intermediate phase. Intermediate we mean that the world will have some of its features that it has now and some of the features that it will have in the post-Messianic age. For example, instead of having the full free will that we have now, we'll have less free will. How much less? To give a rough idea, it will be sort of the kind of free will that an angel has. An angel has free will, practically, 
But in, in, I mean, technically speaking, he has free will. But in absolute practice, his free will is very meaningless. If you want an analogy for this, it's like <clears throat> if I ask whether you have free will to walk into a fire, the answer is, well, technically speaking, you have free will. Yes, you could walk into the fire. But in practice, really, you wouldn't do that. The reason is you see the consequences so plainly that you actually wouldn't do that. An angel has that sort of free will. An angel has... Thank you very much. An angel has the free will to do something wrong, but in real practice it's meaningless, right? Reason? He sees so clearly the consequences of going against what Hashem says. He sees it as an immediate disappearance from reality that in practice he wouldn't do it. Just as you have free will to walk into a fire or to leap off a very tall building. Technically speaking, yes, you have free will. But in, in, in practical meaning, it's almost worthless or meaningless because, let's put it another way, your free will is meaningful only to the extent that you live in doubt. Only to the extent that you lack clarity do you have free will. Right? It's to the extent that you can get away, you think you can get away with hurting someone's feelings because you lack clarity. If you felt instantaneously at the, ma- at the moment you hurt their feelings the same pain that they feel- felt, Right. Every time you hurt anyone else, you felt the same pain yourself instantaneously. You would, you know, you wouldn't do many acts of, of that sort of thing. The reason you you do things like that is because you are in in the darkness enough to think you can get away with it. You think, well, you know, they really deserve it, and actually, uh, they don't actually feel. By the time you finish, it's a big mitzvah, <clears throat> and that's why you allow yourself to do things that are not right. Only to the extent that you lack clarity are you free. As soon as you see the damage of your actions, right? Why do you fail in your self-control? Because you don't see the damage. Let's say that you're on diet. Why do you break your diet? Because at the moment that you break your diet, you don't see the consequences clearly. You allow yourself to become blind to the consequences. Or a person taking drugs or smoking or any other harmful act, self-damaging activity. Why do they do it? Because at the moment that they commit the the act, they allow themselves to hide. This is what the Talmud calls a Ruhrstus. A moment, a temporary, a moment of voluntary, temporary insanity. You allow yourself to be, to hide, you hide reality from yourself to, for long enough to allow yourself to do that thing. If you couldn't hide from reality, you would never do it. Right? And therefore, an angel is not hidden, he doesn't have reality hidden from him, just like Adam had almost no free will. In the Messianic age, when it's, Umala when, when Hashem's presence fills the world with absolute clarity, why would you do anything wrong? You'd, do, you, you'd only be tempted to do a thing wrong as much as you'd be tempted to step into a fire. The reason you're tempted to do things wrong now <clears throat> is because you have doubts. You have doubts about Hashem's existence and whether He sees you and whether He's concerned about you and all sorts of doubts. And therefore, in the Messianic age, you'll have the sort of free will that is technically speaking available, but in practical terms, very, very limited. That's point one. <clears throat> now, Point two is this. Why is, what's the meaning? Right? Let's try to grapple with this. What's the meaning of an intermediate phase like this? Why do we need a phase during which there's very little free will, but there is some free will? Why do we need that? <clears throat> to put the question more plainly, the purpose of the world is to work to earn a reward. Right? That's the purpose. The Ramchal says very plainly that the ultimate purpose of the world is to have another dimension in which the soul experiences the ecstasy of a relationship with Hashem. That is what's called the world to come. Not talking about the Messianic age. The post-Messianic age, the world to come, Olam Abba, that is the stage during which a soul experiences the ecstasy of bonding in oneness with Hashem. 
Why do you have a world that is a precursor to that world within which we live now? The answer is because if you were given that ultimate ecstasy for free, then you would not, you'd feel the shame and humiliation of being given a free handout. And therefore you have a world now during which you have the opportunity of working. I'm not going to deal with the question, the, the very good question of why Hashem could not have made us, giving us the ecstasy and making us love it. Why does he have to make us feel humiliated at free gifts? That's another question for another time. But the point is that the structure of the world is a world of reward, which is blissful and ecstatic, but blissful and ecstatic only because there's been a precursor world during which you can work and earn it. Well, if that's the structure of the world, why do you need a third phase that's intermediate? Do do, do, do you see the question? Anyone out there? One second. If there is... You work, right, to get your reward. So then there should be a, wor- a phase of full work, and then when you finish the work, a phase of reward. Why is Hashem giving you a phase during which you can do some work but very little, <clears throat> and gain some reward but not the full reward? Okay, that's the question. Maral deals with this, and I'd like to share with you what he says. There's, there's much m- more than one dimension here, of course, but let's try to at least begin to approach this. The first level of answer is what the Maral explains. And he says like this, and I'm going to take a lot of liberty here and paraphrase it broadly in order to try to make it a bit more plain. You know, the face of the world's history that we live in now, let's say here, during these 6,000 years that we're living through now, they have the advantage of being able to work hard because since the sin of Adam, we live in an incredibly dark world. Where and it's getting darker all the time during the do- due to the doctrine of Yerudas Adairis as the generations go down, we live in a in a phase in a in, in a phase of history that's extremely dark, and because of that we can do an enormous amount of work. But of course there's a disadvantage too. <coughs> there's a serious disadvantage, and that is <coughs> that the amount of work you can do, the success that you can develop is extremely limited. It's limited because the world is a very constricted and constrained place. Right? To put it in a very, very, very basic terms. Let's say you make a, the, the maximum effort you could in order to reach, achieve your full self-development. Become as sensitive and refined, as righteous, as caring, as loving, as highly developed as you could. There are very serious constraints on your ability to do that. You have to sleep. There's times when you have to eat. You've got to do practical stuff. You've got to earn a living. Just the, just the hassle of earning a living. Okay? Even though, of course, the opportunity of earning living also gives you opportunities for developing your righteousness and your refinement. But there are practical steps. There are so many practical things you have to look at. You take one day. Look at how many activities during a day are not directly geared to spiritual development. A lot of practical stuff. In fact, there's one section in the Talmud where an amazing discussion where Hashem, <clears throat> the discussion there is the, is the punishment that people will, you know, the, the, the punishment that the Jewish people or that people deserve for having failed in the service of Hashem. And there the Gemara says there's a debate between Hashem and one of the others, Yitzchak. And Yitzchak says to Hashem, look, Hashem, how much, did the, how much do people really sin? How long do they live? They live, let's say, 70 years? Okay, how many of those years do they spend sleeping? Well, during the time they're sleeping, people aren't sinning. Good, so now we've knocked off a whole, a whole bunch of years. Now, let's talk about times when people are doing other things, using the bathroom, they're eating, they're doing all kinds of other things. By the time you, let's take off all the years that a child's not yet bar mitzvah, he's not guilty there. By the time you knock it down to the phase of your life that you're really able to generate something meaningful, <clears throat> it's actually quite small. 
you are seriously limited in how much of your potential you can reach. Stay carefully with me. The Messianic Age is the amazing opportunity to develop further to your full potential. In other words, if you live through a phase of history where your ability to develop to your maximum is limited, and then Hashem would cast you immediately, precipitate you rapidly into the next world, you would arrive unprepared. You would have done a certain amount of work on yourself, but the full development of all your potential you would not have reached, and you find yourself in the next world not perfect. And he doesn't want that. He wants you to arrive in the next world with absolutely every opportunity you have to perfect yourself. And the Maral says something like this, that Hashem gives you a world in which to work, and then he gives you another phase called the Messianic Age, during which you will have all the advantages you need. No worry about earning a living, no hassles about practicality. There's no, you'll not have no other work there than developing to your absolute perfect maximum <clears throat> so that when the Messianic Age ends and the thousand years of Shabbos <clears throat> and the subsequent levels of the world to come begin, you will have reached your perfection. Now, but, but there's a big catch here. There's a very big catch. And, and the catch is this. When a person enters the Messianic Age, he will be able to develop to his maximum every opportunity, every nuance, every subtlety of his character and his uh, potential will be developed to the maximum, but only those things that you began to develop beforehand. Okay? <clears throat> the Maral puts it in the most memorable fashion. He puts it like this. You know that the days of the history of the world are compared to the weekdays, right? We said that, yes? Six days of the week corresponding to 6,000 years. The last, the, the sixth, the seventh thousand years is corresponding to Shabbos. Yes? That means each day of creation corresponds to a thousand years of history. The day of Shabbos in creation corresponds to a thousand years of post-Messianic world to come. <clears throat> so you have in history a parallel to weekdays, and you have in history a parallel to Shabbos. The question is, what in history is parallel to a Chag, to a Yom Tov? Again, there are three kinds of days in Judaism. Yes, there's weekdays, there's Shabbos, but there's also another day. A, de- a festival, right? A Chag. A festival is not a weekday, but it's not Shabbos. On a festival, for example, Yom Tov, you cannot work. But there's some work you can do, not like Shabbos. On Shabbos, you can't do any malacha. On a festival, you can cook, you can carry. There's certain things you can do on a festival. What in history, listen well, it's an amazing thing. What in history parallels a Yom Tov? That means the, year, the, the 6,000 years of history parallel the weekdays. The 7,000 year, years, that parallels Shabbos. Which phase of history parallels the intermediate zone of a thing which is not a weekday, but it's not yet Shabbos? And the answer is the Messianic Age. The Messianic Age, the world we live through now is like weekdays. Then there will come a time which is Immersal Mashiach. They will parallel what a festival is. And then we'll leave that behind and move into Shabbos. Maral says that the Messianic age is like a festival on a Friday. You hear that? That means, what happens when a Yom Tov falls on a Friday? So what happens is you go from a weekday, Thursday, into Friday, which is a Chag, and from there you go into Shabbos. What is the characteristic of a festival that's not like Shabbos? On a festival you can cook, but only if you lit the fire beforehand. Only if you began, you hear the difference? Yemosa Mashiach is like a festival. You will be able to develop there, but only to the extent that you began things before. Actually, he has a more sophisticated approach. The approach, he says, is like this. He says that, you know, <coughs> the problem with a Friday that's a Yom Tov is that, of course, you can cook your needs. 
You can cook what, what you need. The problem is you can't cook on the Friday for Shabbos. Because one of the laws of a festival is you do only what's necessary for the day. Ein yomt of mechin le Shabbos. is a principle that a festival cannot prepare for Shabbos. Yes? So when you're cooking on Friday for Friday's meals, which is a festival, that's Beseda. But you can't cook on Friday Shabbos meals. Says the Maral, yep, there's one way you can do it. On Thursday you make an Eruv Tavshili. On Thursday, this is the secret depth of Eruv Tavshili. You take on Thursday some food that's ready for Shabbos, and you declare that what you're doing now is going to make, is gonna, well, I'm not going to go into halachic details, but you make a halachic procedure that allows Friday, which is a yontif, to prepare for Shabbos. Says the Maral that the Messianic age <coughs> is like a Friday festival during which you'll be able to prepare for Shabbos, so that you'll go into the Shabbos thousand years perfect, but only if you took the trouble to prepare now. In other words, you'd have the free will then to develop to your maximum, but no new free will. You can't start any projects there when it's obvious. When Hashem arrives and says, shows himself clearly, and then you become a big tzaddik, no, it's not so impressive. If you're a tzaddik now and people laugh at you, and it's difficult and you make an effort, only through no fault of yours you don't develop your perfection, Hashem says, don't worry, that's stored away for you. You enter the messianic age, you get rocket-powered ability to develop to this perfection. But if you didn't wake up now, right, and you didn't think it was worthwhile, and you made no effort, and then you enter the messianic age when Hashem's presence is clear, and now you want to develop, then it'll be too late. Just like no conversion to Judaism will be allowed in that age, because it'll be obvious, conversion always has to be something that is done against resistance, in other words, a, a show of sincerity, right, where, where the only reason for conversion is, is an idealism. And therefore, when, when the Jews have got the upper hand, and the obvious place to be <clears throat> is with us, right, when we're running the show, as it were, and everything's going our way, then, then conversion is meaningless. Because how can you ever have a show of sincerity? Maybe you just want to be on the winning team. So conversion will not be allowed during your Muslim Mashiach, <clears throat> right? Similarly, you will not be able to convert yourself into your perfection unless you've begun it beforehand. That's one idea, one theme behind the concept of the need for an intermediate zone. In summary, it will be a phase during which there will be a little free will, but not the full free will that you have before. Why? Because there will be a phase that is mechin le Shabbos, a, an age during which you can prepare your perfection, and with no resistance reach your absolute fulfillment, so that when you enter the next world, there's nothing unfair at all. You have developed to all your potential that you are able to develop, with no resistance at all, on the contrary, with all the help you need, but not because you began it then when it suited you, rather when you made the effort against resistance beforehand, and due to no fault of yours, you weren't able to bring it to perfection, that is when you'll be able to have that, that face. That's one concept of the need for the, the Messianic Age. Let, let me just, can you remember your question, please, and I'll stop at the end. I just want to get through a certain amount of material, and then I'll be very glad to stop with questions in a few minutes. Don't forget your question. <clears throat> There's one more concept I'd like to mention, and that is the Messianic Age also has another reason. Let's put it this way. Let's put it in a radical fashion. Why do we need the Mashiach at all? You know that in Judaism we're allergic to intermediaries, right? If there's one thing that Judaism is allergic to, it's the concept of intermediaries, right? It's one of the 13 principles that you're not allowed to pray to an intermediary. There is no such thing as intermediary. That had, When I say there's no intermediary, I mean there's nothing in the creation that has its own power. Of course there are intermediaries. The stars, the sun, the wind, the moon... All the forces of chemistry and physics and nature, those are all intermediaries. Hashem does not impinge on us directly. He, impinges, he, he, he relates to us through a world of nature, 
from behind a mask and a screen. And of course, all those intermediaries are his agencies, as it were, through, through which he deals with us. The mistake, of course, is to understand that any of those intermediaries have their own decision-making power. That's what's completely ridiculous, right? That's idolatrous, is to believe that any intermediary level has its own free will, <clears throat> its own independence. That's ridiculous. But even the thought of an intermediary having its, some sort of independence is we are completely allergic to. I, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept that even singing the song on Friday night, right? Shalom Aleichem Aleichem Ashares, even that song is problematic. There are those who don't sing it, and those who sing only the, two, the first two verses. The reason is because the third verse says, Baruchuni Shalom. You're speaking to angels, and you say, give me a blessing. There's a risk that a person might misunderstand that and think that you think that these angels have some independent power. Angels can't give you a blessing unless that's what they were sent for. So when you say, Baruchuni Shalom, do you mean, Hashem, manifest your bracha through these angels as you have sent them to do? Or do you mean... Mr. Angel, I'm appealing to you to yours, use your sort of uh, discretion, as it were, your independence to give me a blessing. That's idolatrous. And therefore, for that reason, there are those people who don't sing it. Believe me, it's fine to sing it. It's absolutely kosher. It's absolutely fine. But, because there's a correct way to understand it. But there's a potential to understand it wrongly. And there are many other examples like that in Judaism. If there's one thing that we're allergic to, it's intermediates. Now, the question is, isn't the Mashiach some sort of intermediary? Why do we need a Mashiach? In Christianity, of course, that's exactly what the Mashiach is. Right? In Christianity, he's a sort of a intermediate. The Rambam says the reason that Christianity has an idolatrous element is because it's called Shutfus. It's giving God a sort of a partner. It's giving, him, it's giving Hashem some sort of element that, so to speak, is in some sense intermediary. We are totally allergic to that notion. If that's true, what is the meaning of Mashiach? He's sort of above human, the human level. He's a supernal type of a human, almost cosmic in his greatness. On the other hand, he's not Hashem. So let, let's put the question another way. Why do we need the Mashiach in the Messianic age? If you ask me to design history, you know, if I were put in charge of you know, the, the world's conduct and all, it's, no one has asked me, you know, by the way, but if I were asked to design the whole process, I would have suggested that we need Mashiach now. Wouldn't that be a good idea? If you'd have asked me when Mashiach is most necessary, I would have said we need him most during the dark phases of history, when we are given to despair and everything looks bleak. Who needs him then? In these days here, when Hashem appears on earth, right, and his presence is absolutely palpable, who needs Mashiach then? If there's one thing characteristic of Judaism is that we deal with Hashem directly. There's nothing besides him. We don't go through intermediaries. When you go and daven at the grave of a tzaddik, for example, you go to the grave of a righteous person. You don't talk to the tzaddik as if he's got some intermediary power. That's idolatrous. You go to a holy place like that because on the merit of the tzaddik, you, you hope to be connected, right? Since you are a descendant of this great people, you are invoking the merit of the forefathers and the great mothers of the Jewish people. A tzaddik is a person, yeah, you, you invoke his merit, but you don't ask him as it were, you don't speak to him as if he's got some independent power. And therefore, why do you need the Mashiach at a time when Hashem is accessible directly? You hear the question? <clears throat> now answer something like this. The Mashiach will be a king who represents the focus and the oneness of the Jewish people. In other words, what's called Achad Ha'am. As the Rambam says, he's the Ma'achet. He, he pulls together the whole Jewish people. He's the focus uh, that brings us all 
together, unites us, and brings us into contact with Hashem. To put it, I, I would put it to you like this. During the Messianic age, not only will Hashem be exposing Himself, revealing Himself in the world the way He always meant Himself to be revealed, but we will be too. This is a two-way relationship. This is not going to be a relationship in which Hashem is doing everything and we doing nothing. Hashem will be revealing Himself in the perfection that He wishes to reveal in the world. And we human beings, the Jewish people, will be revealing ourselves in the world the way we should be. That means the divine will be manifesting the way was Hashem's original plan to manifest, and the human will also be manifesting that way. What is the human level? The Mashiach will be, just to give you an idea, put it like this. The Messiah will be the greatest human being imaginable. The most powerful, mighty, international leader. That absolutely, categorically, but unassailable, right? The most powerful international ruler ever. Not like in great leaders in the past who sort of ruled for a time and then were overthrown. You're talking about a person of absolutely incontrovertible, totally categorical rule, greater than anybody who has ever lived virtually, right? with complete unassailable power, and he will demonstrate that he's nothing, that he's completely trans- transparent. Right? That's what a human being is supposed to be. A human being, you see, the Jewish concept of a fully developed human being is not a person who is egotistically great, but on the other hand, it's not a person who's so empty that there's nothing of him. The, the, the Jewish, the Torah ideal of a person who's reached perfection is a person who has reached genuine personal greatness, but the ego element has been annulled. Is this clear? A real servant of Hashem is not somebody who's a complete nobody. That's not a servant. That's just a person who's going to get in the way. Right? A real slave is one who comes to his master. A, a, a slave who comes to his master and says, Master, I am here at your service, Right? I am completely empty. I have no will of my own. Right? I'm just an empty, just push me, pull me, do whatever. You. That's not a slave. That's just a person who's going to be a nuisance. A slave is a person who comes to his master and he says, Master, I'm burning with ambition. I long to fulfill myself. I want to use all my abilities and all my power and all my talents, but I want to use them for you. I have no personal egotistical need. That's a servant. A real Eved Hashem is not a person who has no character, no personality, no sense of humor, no creativity, no originality. That's not, a, that's not a servant of Hashem. That's just a deathly bore. A real servant of Hashem is somebody who uses all his uniqueness, all his character, his outstanding qualities, and his sense of humor, and his sense of... He has a flamingly individual assertion of self. But he's completely devoid of any egotistical childish for me. That's the ultimate reflection of that in the world will be Mashiach. He'll be a person who is far greater than we can begin to imagine. But he will manifest the fact that he's completely and utterly transparent. When you see him, you will see that all of his greatness is dedicated totally to being a conduit, a channel, an absolutely clear glass through which Hashem is refracted. Right? And that is another reason why the Messianic age is needed. It will be an expression of that level of human greatness. I'm going to stop now for questions because I'm sure there are a lot of questions. There are many other things to talk about, such as the detailed predictions, the question of resurrection of the dead, which... <coughs> perhaps I'll just mention briefly, <clears throat> is that there's a big discussion about when the dead will be revived. During the Messianic age, those who have died will be resurrected. According to most opinions, as the Talmud makes clear in Perik Chelek, <clears throat> there will be two resurrections. Somewhere after the beginning of the Messianic age, according to one opinion, at the very beginning, lasting 40 years, according to another opinion, after 40 years, the dead will be revived. Those people who are now in a higher zone called the world of souls, 
not the world to come, that hasn't happened yet, but in the world of souls, those people, or rather some of those people we resurrected, I'm not going to go into the details now, why only some, that also needs to be discussed in detail, but some of the people who are dead now will be resurrected, and they will live during the Messianic age and merit to see it. And later in the Messianic age, sometime before the final stage, before the final thousand years of post-Messianic age, then everybody will be revived. And there's a fascinating discussion in the Talmud and the Rishonim. The Radbaz talks about this and Rashi. What will happen to those who are resurrected the first time? Will they simply remain alive when all the others are brought to life? Will they die but not decompose? Will they die instantaneously and be revived again? There's many different opinions about this, each of them with its own meaning and its own depth. But in summary, there is a teaching that there will be two phases of Tchiasamesi. One, after the beginning of the Messianic Age, there will be a resurrection of certain numbers of people. Which people? Those who particularly, one qualification is that these are people involved in Torah. Right? Because Torah is the Tal Shel Learning Torah is the due of resurrection. And therefore what brings these people to life will be their engagement in Torah. Either the learning of Torah or the facilitating of Torah. Either one is equally valid. Either you learn Torah or you made it possible for someone to learn. <clears throat> for example, a person who paid someone else to learn, to the extent that they made it possible for that person to learn, they will share equally in the power and the reward, if you like, of the person's learning. Another example might be a woman who limits her own learning. Yeah, Of course she shouldn't do that, but let's say a woman whose merit in learning is the fact that she gets a husband or a sons to learn, facilitates it. Even if she does no learning of her own, I'm not saying that's good, I'm just saying, even if a woman does no learning of her own, but she's the reason that the men folk in her family are able to learn, she has 100% of the merit of their learning. Not 50-50, but 100-100. So people who are making Torah possible, either by engaging it themselves or making sure that others engage in it, that is one criterion that leads to the resurrection. There's another one, and that is people who so long to see Yerushalayim rebuilt. People who so long to see the Messianic Age. Hashem will give them the special merit, not only of living in the, in the post-Messianic age, in the world to come, He will give them the unique merit of being alive to see yeah, Israel and Jerusalem rebuilt in this present physical form. Right? But they needed to be people who had a special longing for that and never merited in their lifetime to enter the Messianic age. <coughs> they will be resurrected. And then finally, sometime later, will be what's called the general Chiasamesim, with the Day of Judgment and all sorts of other details. And finally, from there on in, will be the final long-term phase that is sometimes referred to as Tchiasamesim in general, sometimes referred to as the world to come, and various other names. That is, those are some of the aspects of Tchiasamesim. The doctrine of Tchiasamesim itself, the resurrection of the dead, is a very long subject. We need to devote a whole discussion to that. It's not simply people getting up out of their graves and sort of reassembling their, you know, connecting the bones and, and, and sort of going on with what they were doing before. You know, that's a very childish notion. Resurrection of the dead means getting up and continue where you left off. You know, you're another party tonight and continue the same argument with the neighbors tomorrow, and, except this time you'll win, you know. <coughs> we're not talking about that. We're talking about a totally different phase. Tresemesim doesn't simply mean that the body is resurrected. Tresemesim means that death itself is resurrected, that everything that died, that every moment of your life that passed away, because life is a constant die. All of that comes back to life. Tresa isn't simply that a dead person gets up and continues. Tresa means that the passage of time is resurrected. That there's no passing of the present into the past. Right? That's dying. When the past, trans- yeah, as the pe- present becomes the past, is death. 
when you go to sleep tonight, today is gone, will never come again. Never. Right? Each moment, each conversation, each moment in a love relationship, each moment in a friendship, each day of achievement, it's only, it only lasts as long as, after it's gone, it's gone, never comes back again. Tchirasamesim doesn't mean that the dead will be revived. Tchirasamesim means that death itself will be resurrected. Every day that passed, the dying of the day, the fact that the days of will never come, that itself will be resurrected. That means what the day benefited, each day of your life that you developed, all of that will live permanently. There won't be a moving of present into past. There'll be a moving of present into a future that is the present. My Rebbe once said that <clears throat> now time goes like this, not in a linear fashion forward, but in the Messianic age, time will go like that. It will spread out. In other words, you'll move into a moment taking the past moment with you as present. Do you know what that means? you know what that means? When you, when you, yeah, we are sitting here tonight learning Torah. What happens when this class is over? You walk out. And what happens? You leave this le- lecture behind you. And you walk out to the next phase of your life. In Tchersamesim, you will walk into the next phase of your life with this phase with you. Not having been left behind. It will not have died. Do you know what that means? Imagine a moment of ecstasy. And as the ecstasy, you know, the greater the ecstasy is in this world, the sooner it's over. That's the nature of life. Your senses cannot sustain an ecstasy for more than a moment. What happens in this world is the ecstasy is enjoyed and it's over and it dies. And the next month all you have is a memory. But in the next world what will happen is you'll have a moment of ecstasy and you'll move into the next moment with the previous moment fully alive and amplified a million fold by the next moment. And that will also remain alive. And you'll move into the next moment with all of that being amplified. Nothing moves into the past. Do you understand? Death is a null. That's not... That needs to be discussed. That's a deep aspect of the concept of Tchiasmet. Let me stop here for questions and I'll try and do my best to deal with them if I can. Yeah. Um, when you were saying about you can only perfect what you've already <coughs> taken steps to start, a few weeks ago you did a show on free will and you said you're only judged at the point that you, you're holding at. If you don't know there's those things that you should have started because you're not at that level, then you can never perfect those things because you can't have started them until you've hit a certain level. Yeah, but if we take your question to its full extent, nobody can have ever started, no one, no matter what he knows, can ever have started everything. Right. Okay. Your judgment is going to be with the tools you were given. Okay. Put it in the terms of the point of free will. At the point of free will that you occupied in your lifetime, not your fault, because you were born into this particular time and place with all the details. Yet, did you do the best you could have under those circumstances? Did you open everything you could have to the best of your abilities? That's all that can be expected. Yes, you will not be the same as Moshe Rabbein as Moses because you don't have his ability, but you aren't going to be judged on that. Let me make it even more plain. The, the best way I know to put it is this. The briskar of one said like this. It says, Oi lanu miyom adin, Oi lanu miyom That means, woe to us from the day of judgment, and woe to us from the day of rebuke. Din means the law. Tochacha means reproof, rebuke. So he used to say, why do you need both those expressions? Why are you going to be judged on two levels? Now listen carefully. The first level is din. Let's say you die, you go to some place of judgment, yeah? The first thing they do is they open the book. Open the book. I show you, look, this is what the Torah says, these are the laws, you broke them. How will you defend yourself against that? If you say, Hashem, look, I wasn't brought up in a Torah-knowledgeable situation, I never had that opportunity. Somebody's responsible in my family, back who knows when, but not me. If that's a genuine claim, and you had absolutely no opportunity to know those things, they're going to close the book and say, fine. But then comes the second judgment. The second judgment is, let's open your book. Not my book, your book. Let's take the book of your values. And how they do that? 
they run the video of your life. You know, that there's a very sophisticated video <laughs> program. Digitalized, absolutely crystal clear, Dolby surround sound, absolutely clear, holographic, all things there. They run this video of your life, and the first scene they come to is you making a nice little speech about loyalty to friends, and how upset you were when somebody let you down, and how people should be loyal to them. Then they run the video on a few friends, and they show you letting one of your friends down. Ooh, now you're in big trouble. Now you can't say, well, you never knew about that. Tochacha means reproof. That means you are proved against by yourself. Tochacha means proof. Proof means the evidence is presented. What's the evidence? You spoke about that. Do you understand? Or they ask you why you didn't fulfill a certain mitzvah, and you say, Hashem, look, you made me lazy. You created me. You made me lazy. Not my fault. You made me lazy. I find it hard to get going. Is that so? They run this video a few frames for and they see a little snap of you getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning to go and make money someplace or to go and participate in some sporting event or to watch some brain-dead bozo punching another one to death in a boxing ring someplace halfway across the world. You got up at 4 o'clock in the morning for that. Oh, one second, you said you were... So, you're selectively lazy. You were lazy only when it didn't suit you. When it came to myth, yeah, oh, there's no... You understand? And therefore, there are two scales of judgment. One scale of judgment is the book. The second scale of judgment is your book. Nobody can get out of that. You can be a Jew who doesn't even know he's Jewish. You can be a Jew given away as a baby to non-Jews during the war. You've never heard of a thing called Shabbos. Never. You never. You're not going to be held accountable for that. But boy, are you going to be held accountable for the values that you attached yourself to, the natural values, the ones that you took on. You understand? That's your scale of judgment. So don't worry about where you pitched on the scale. That's not relevant. Yes, please. I think Mashiach is... <coughs> Messianic age is meant to be something for which we, we long. Yeah. But the, um, as you said before, the, the um, description of what's actually going to happen, I right. think you said the, uh, geo, the political yeah. or whatever, we don't really know. Yes. So how can you, person, how can we long for something that we don't know so little about? Good question, yes. Well, there's more than, if I may expand your question with your permission. The question was, how can we really long for something we know so little about? And the question's worse than that. How can you long for something that's going to be so disastrous in so many ways? You're going to be exposed. You're going to be exposed. When the Mashiach comes, you think you're going to go dancing in the street and go up and shake his hand and say, Shakur, thanks for coming. <laughs> when the Mashiach comes, you're going to be quaking, hiding under the table in case he looks at you. You know, Mashiach's going to look right through you. Gemara says, Meirach Vadoin, he's going to smell Yiras Hashem. Virichu Yiras Hashem, he's going to smell Yiras Hashem. Actually, according to some Kabbalistic traditions, it's the Mashiach ben Yosef that will do. He'll come before the Mashiach ben... I didn't even go into that. There'll be a Messianic advent before the Mashiach. Apart from, uh, apart from a cruel letdown, a cruel disappointment, that there has to be before the final <coughs> redemption, there'll also be another Mashiach called the Mashiach ben Yosef. Now, this is a whole discussion in its own right, but be that as it may... <coughs> One of the functions of Mashiach, whichever Mashiach it is, is to clarify exactly who's who. Who's really Jewish, who's really a Kohen, who, yeah, a whole lot of clarification. He's going to smell Yes Hashem. So when Mashiach comes, it's going to be very, very revealing. Secondly, it's going to be terrifying. The Gemara says, let it come, but let me not see it. You're talking about birth pains. Birth pains. Here's this woman looking forward to giving birth to her child. She's got all these romantic ideas about this baby. She starts decorating the room in blue or pink. When she goes into labor, it's not a picnic. I'm not trying to put you off, ladies. I mean, it's a wonderful <laughs> thing, but it's not a picnic. Right? That means that when it comes, yes, it's going to bring about the birth of a child. It's called Chevle Mashiach, but it's not, not pretty when it's going to happen. Furthermore, if Mashiach comes, your work is over. 
That's really scary. Why are you longing for this Mashiach to come when it's going to signal the end of the whole project? You know, who, which of us can say that we are really ready? So Mashiach is going to come, it's going to put an end to all your potential for development. Right? If you didn't start the things you should have, as we said before, and Mashiach comes. Not only that, but are we really ready? Rav Miller always used to say, <clears throat> how would you respond with the Mashiach? Let's be honest with ourselves. How will you really respond? Here's this family getting ready for a vacation. <clears throat> they pack the car. The summer's come, right? They've been working hard all year. They're about to get in the car, and they're going this long for vacation. <clears throat> They've got all their stuff and all their equipment, and their kids have got all their stuff they're taking with them. And, the, yeah. and as you're about to you lock the door and you're about to get in the car, so suddenly on the radio you hear the Messiah's arrived. The Jewish Mashiach has arrived. People are dancing in the streets. New York's become frum. Uh, you know... Like, you know, Las Vegas has crumpled to the ground. Well, whatever, you know, there's going to be. <coughs> What's the family's response? There are some people you could picture saying, did you have to come now, you know? Couldn't you have, couldn't you have come after the vacation, you know? Are you really ready? So there's a lot of questions here about, about yeah, your question is the least of them. How can you long for something you don't understand? There's deeper questions. How can you long for something that's going to be so disastrous in some ways for you? That's going to cut off all your ability to develop, right? So, <clears throat> let's deal with that. The Chavetz Chaim's answer was, to your question, he gave a simple answer. I mean, in one, in one sense, simple. He says, the reason we belong for Mashiach is an act of self-sacrifice. That we so long for Hashem's glory to be revealed. We so long for Hashem's dishonor in the world to end. That we prepare to sacrifice all the work, all the ongoing work we could be doing on ourselves. You know, you understand. In other words, there's an act of giving of self here. I'm prepared to say, Hashem, you know what? I haven't learned enough Torah. And but you know what? I'm prepared to give up the perfection and all the masechtas I've never learned, and all the Torah greatness that I could have achieved, rather to see you being glorified properly in the world and not being not being spat at, spat upon and, and, and denigrated and, and, and humiliated in the world. I'm prepared to give myself up for that. That's what the Chavetz Chaim said. A deeper answer is what the Maral said. A more complex answer, like we said here. When Mashiach comes, not that you're giving yourself up in your self-development. You're going to be able to develop to your maximum then, provided you made the effort now. That's the kind of person who says, Hashem, I haven't learned all those masechites, but I tried. I tried. I spent all the time I could have. When I wasn't working and supporting my family, I sat down and I learned. Only I haven't reached the full. So when Mashiach comes, you won't be sacrificing that. You'll be given the ability to reach all that and all the pleasure, provided you started beforehand. These are two answers the third level is what you asked. Not the problems and the pain and the suffering, but the fact that you don't understand it. How can you long for that? The way to think about that is that what you certainly can understand and what you ought to understand is that the, the, the phase that we're living through now, the world as we know it now, is so fraught with suffering, is so drenched in blood, that if you aren't sensitive to that, there's something wrong with you. There's not a person sitting in this room that doesn't have at least one person close to them who isn't suffering unspeakably, either meritally, psychologically, medically, financially, all of the above. If you don't feel that, right, to the, if you can't feel the suffering of the world, the, the hopelessness, the despair, the anguish, the terror, the brutality, the fear of the world, if you can't feel that to the extent that it doesn't make you long for Hashem to manifest Himself, who cares what it looks like? He knows what He's doing. Just let Him catch you. I didn't end all this. There's something wrong with you. The world wasn't created to look like the way it looks now. You know, you don't look convinced. 
Take, take a simple look. I, I challenge you. You know, the, the, in, uh, six years ago when the millennium thing, a lot of publishers put out books reviewing in the past 100 years. I have a book at home that's called 101 Years in Pictures. You can weep uncontrollably over every page. And those are the only things they photograph. Can you imagine the things that never... On every page are massacres. I'm talking about assassinations. Ma- massacres that... There were massacres of, 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 of nations that didn't make it into the headlines. There were, there were times when 10,000 bodies were floating in Lake Tanganyika. You couldn't drink the water because of human bodies. Je- I'm talking about genocides that didn't even make a headline. The Hutus killed the Tutus and the... And the uh, let alone the Jew, Jewish... Um, let, let alone what happened in Turkey. The Armenian... I'm talking about genocides. Do you know how many people were killed in the last century? I think over 100 million people were killed in the last... I'm not talking about flu pandemic. I'm talking about sheer evil-minded human brutality. I think Stalin alone was responsible for killing 18 million people. You're talking a world of unspeakable brutality. If you're not sensitive to that, to the extent that you want Hashem to reveal himself in such a way that that thing is corrected, there's something desperately insensitive about you. You want to want things to make things better, but if you don't know how it's going to be done, you don't know that it's not going to be worse. I mean, if you take it's not going to be worse. You don't rely on him that it's going to be good. For an example, if you want to if you want to cut crime, if you lock every single person up in prison, you'll right. cut crime to zero. But it would be. Um, but why do you think that's an analogy for the way it's going to be? Um, Rambam implying that all you have to know is that it will happen and it will be good. How he decides to make it good, you don't have to worry about that. That's his problem. Yeah, you have to be not only long for a resolution of a conflict or a problem because you can see what the solution must be. You can long powerfully for the sol- powerfully for the solution because you see the problem, and that's a mitzvah. It's called tzipia lishua. There's a mitzvah to long for the redemption. Do you know what the mitzvah means? To understand that you're now in the darkness. Let me just speak about this briefly. If you read this Buddhist book, you know there's a very good book written about Judaism and Buddhism. Right? That's called Letters to, a, Letters to a Buddhist Jew. It's absolutely excellent book, as I've said before many times. And in that book is a discussion between a Buddhist Jew and a person who tries to answer this Buddhist Jew. Right? Now, one of the questions the Buddhists ask is like this. According to Buddhism, you shouldn't long for anything. Because when you long, you suffer. Longing, by definition, means that you're in a situation of imperfection. You should learn to, to, you should learn to be happy... In the moment, as soon as you're longing, it's an admission. If I long for redemption, if I long for perfection, if I long for a perfect world, it's an admission that I'm in an imperfect world now, so I'm suffering. And therefore, the teaching is not to crave, to cling, to long. And in Judaism, it's a mitzvah to long. It's a mitzvah to long for the Mashiach, to hope every day that he'll arrive. So the question is, aren't you locked into suffering that way? Aren't you every day sitting there, clenching and gritting your teeth, Hating every moment because you're longing for something better? Now, the answer is like this. Listen carefully. First of all, what's wrong with the doctrine of teaching that people should not long? Let's take the Buddhist position for a moment. Don't long. Just be where you are now and be happy as you are now. Now, be careful. We're not against that in Judaism, being happy as you are now. But the notion that there's nothing better to long for that all is now as it is now. It is now perfect, right? In fact, he quotes me, one of his Buddhist teachers, when I asked this question. And this Buddhist priest said, all is now and all is perfect. That's what they teach. All is now, all is now, and all is perfect. That means you have to define everything as it is now as perfect. Listen, listen carefully to our, our take on that. 
You see, this is difficult because there is a truth in that. There is a deep truth in that. But I want to try to extract from you the problem from the truth. Rabbi Yonah says this, and I'm paraphrasing a marshal of his. It's a very powerful idea and it's a classic. Let me share it with you. A group of people are locked in jail. A group of men are locked in jail. After a while, some of them start digging a tunnel. And after a while, they succeed and they dig a hole in the wall and they escape. One stays behind. One man stays behind, sits there in the jail cell. There's a tunnel, a, a, a hole in the wall. He could easily slip out. All the others have slipped out and they've long gone and free. And he's sitting there. Sometime later, the jailer walks into the cell, sees that the others have fled, and starts mercilessly beating the fellow who's there. So the prisoner says to the jailer, why are you beating me? I'm the only one who's, keep, who's, who's keeping the law. You're beating me? I'm the one who stayed. End of analogy. What does Rubena Yuna mean? Listen carefully, it's an amazing thing. <clears throat> Why does the jailer beat the one who's remained? <clears throat> the answer is, he's done a crime much greater than the ones who escaped. The people who escaped have broken the jail. The one who stayed has completely and utterly destroyed the jail. A jail only holds people who don't want to be there. The definition of a jail is it holds people who don't want to be there. As soon as he has the option of leaving and he shows that he doesn't wish to leave, he just this jail just disappeared. It's only a jail to the extent that it holds a person who's prison, imprisoned there. As soon as the person shows that he's not imprisoned there, he's just as soon stay. He's offended the jailer much more deeply than those who broke out. Those who broke out showed that the jail was their enemy. They didn't want to be there. They fought against it. Yeah, and in this particular instant, they're victorious. The one who shows that he doesn't want to escape shows that there never was a jail in the first place. Okay. A person who does not long for the Mashiach, what he's doing is he's redefining suffering, imperfection, all the problems. He's redefining that as perfection. It's like a person sitting in the dark. He has two options. One is put on the light. The second is just redefine the darkness as light. Just, oh, oh it's light enough now. If you want to put this in a very crude fashion, in the, in the computer industry, in the computer industry, there's a joke about Microsoft. I mean, this is said by all the jealous you know, individuals who didn't achieve what Microsoft did, of course. But the joke is like this. You know, Microsoft calls the tune, right? They can do whatever they want because they like are everything. So what did Microsoft do when the lights go out? They just redefine the darkness as the standard. Just one second. There's a depth in this. In other words, if you decide not too long. What are you doing? You're saying that the world as it is now is perfect. With all its bloodshed and brutality and suffering and humiliation of the Kfon Shemaim, all of that. Therefore, of course you have to long. Longing means you can see clearly that a world of death and suffering is not where it was designed to be. Now you have another problem. Aren't you going to be unhappy? That's a separate subject. A Jew has to be able to long, know that it's a world of brutality and suffering, and be happy at the same time. How do you do that? Okay, that's another subject. But that's an amazing question. Yeah. Um, in our prayers, we'll, we constantly refer to Messiah as the son of David. Yeah. Surely that would limit the number of people who could possibly be the Messiah. Of course. Why do you want that limited number? Because uh, just need one. Be of the royal house of David. Sure, you'll be descended and from him. How many people? How many Jews? We just need one. What's your problem? We just need one. Just of course, we just need one. What's your problem? You want unlimited number of potential candidates? You think we're going to elect him? Uh, Even the Christians, by the way, are very fussy to say. You know that. The Christians make a big fuss about the fact that the father of the founder of Christianity was from the house of David. 
Because even though, yeah, even they know that he must, even though he wasn't his father, according to Christian doctrine, right? He had nothing to do with his birth. Nevertheless, he must. It's not that there is a problem, but if if so, we must we must know some Jews who are descended from the house. We don't know which tribes we're from anymore, but when the Mashiach comes out, will be revealed. Think about it. It's not a problem. Think about it. Yes. Okay. Speak. Speak. Me. Uh, I don't care who speaks. Um, so that's what I'm saying. Part of me is worried about all those people that the Mashiach's going to come and then they're not prepared and that's all right. these Jews are going to be wiped so, out. Already. What? Who says wiped out? Only everybody's going to be judged according to his opinion. Don't get confused. Everyone will be given the reward, judged, punished, rewarded according to his opportunities. Don't worry about that. You want to improve the objective situation, bring him to the JLE. <laughs> yes. Speak. The War of Gog and Magog is the pre-Messianic showdown between the forces of darkness, yes, that make a last-ditch effort to destroy us, because when, when the Sheikh comes, it means they disappear, right? Amalek is the, is, the, is the nation who represents the gap in the world between Hashem and the world. And if the Mashiach comes and reveals Hashem's presence in the world, they die. So they make a last-ditch suicidal effort to stop that process. It says, Al Hashem Baal Al Hashem Baal They come to do battle with God and His Mashiach, no less. Not just the Jewish people, they come openly to battle against Hashem. Why? Even ridiculous. Because the alternative is total annihilation for them. So there will be an almighty showdown in which it's us or them. That's what it says. What does Gog Magog actually mean? Gog is the king of this nation. And Magog is the nation. Gog, if you want to just hear a little bit of the depth here, the Mashiach will be David. David. David is Dalit Vav Dalit. What does that spell? Dalit always means poverty. Complete emptiness. Total emptiness of ego. Dalut means having nothing. Vav means that he's connected to the reality and shown everything. And it doesn't affect him in the least. He still remains at the end the same Dalit that it was in the beginning. That's what the name David means. Who's the arch enemy? Gog. Gimel, Vav, Gimel. Gimel means being full of yourself, having enough overflowing. Vav, shown the reality, doesn't affect him in the least. He remains at the end the same self-inflated Gimel that he was in the beginning. Do you understand? These are the two polarities. Total greatness with absolute ego negation. On the one hand, nothing other than inflated ego. That's the final showdown, right, in the spiritual world. Yes, please. I didn't talk about. I didn't talk about which bodies they'll come back in. That's a for that we need to discuss reincarnation, which is not only the subject of Tchiasamaisim. In other words, people are coming down again all the time now, right? In a reincarnated form, fragments of the soul that were not developed in a previous phase need to be given a chance to go through the opportunity again, and they come down in new bodies. In Tchiasamaisim, finally, there will be a reconstruction. <coughs> we don't necessarily mean. Some places it says that in Tchiyas Amesim there will be only 600,000 people. The original root souls that stood Sinai and individuals who lived throughout the ages will be coalesced into those root souls. So you may come back joined with other family members of yours, right? And you'll be a, a larger soul than you as an individual. But of course your personal peace will be there too. Now we don't have the detailed information about exactly what the groupings and... Yeah, but, but it'll all be there, don't worry. Everybody will be there, yeah. Families will be there too, by the way. Families will be reconstituted. Yes. How much do you think that the 
Mashiach loves you as Mashiach if he's so empty of ego? Like, if he has no ego, how will he recognize what, what he has? This is a fundamental issue and needs a little further thought. The, your question is, if he's that empty, how will he know that he's that great? Listen carefully to this. Very important thing. Maybe we'll finish with this because it's, it's getting late. Ego emptiness does not mean blindness about yourself. Ego emptiness means that you don't take any undue credit. Let me make this clear. Let's say, who is the person in history who most represented this? Moses. Moshe Rabbein, right? The Torah says he was the humblest man who ever lived. That's why he was the greatest. The humbler you are, the more you emptied of your own ego, the more you can be filled with genuine reality. So the paradox of a person like that is, the more empty he is of ego, the more famous, personally famous and great he becomes. Of course, it doesn't mean anything to him. Okay. 